1: Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so with FPL and objects fading in our rearview mirror, we're taking a different tack this week in the first of a new series, striking a new direction in this strange time. Yes, the genesis of our WGCA in lockdown series, which as you'll hear shortly, means a short term diversion away from FPL and into pastures adjacent, yet new. I'm joined by SAG and Nick, of course, today. Nick, you are right.
2: Hey mate, yep, I'm all right. thank you Uh, You know, just enjoying life in the lockdown um, Missing the football so, so much obviously as well Uh, Yeah, but everything's fine Just, uh, you know, getting on with things as you can in this scenario But yeah, just to remind everyone who we are We are Who Got The Assist Twitter is um, at FPL for Tom Nick for me And Stag can be found at FPL Stag We're also on Instagram, WGTA.FPL So, what's on the pod this week, Anthony?
0: So yeah, as we pivot away from FPL, as Tom was saying, what we're going to do first of all is just look at the world of football for just a second. There's been quite a lot happening with regards to the furloughing of non-playing staff at clubs, players taking pay cuts, etc. So we're going to have a quick look at that and some other football news, such as a change of management at the uh, Republic of Ireland international team, which is obviously important to me and some people who are listening. And then we're going to move on to the piece de la resistance of this series, where we're going to look at the new Sunderland Till I Die series, focusing on episode one and looking through the episode to try and understand the greater context of the episode and what goes on in our views on it. Oh,
1: cool, excellent. Uh, just to say as well, before we start, as I've been saying the whole time we've been stuck indoors, uh, this pod's not going to speculate on COVID. Shout out to the key workers, you guys are doing an absolutely heroic job. And we hope this podcast is taken in the spirit in which it is made, which is simply to hopefully make a small positive difference for you all and keep us sane. Right, let's move into the news then. Uh, let's first thing I guess to talk about is furloughing. I mean, just before we came on air, a couple of things uh, have come out, haven't they? Uh, Nick, you just shared a link in our little group, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I did. So originally um, Liverpool were saying that they were going to be furloughing their staff and, um, yeah, came under a lot of criticism off the back of that, obviously. Um you know, as a massive club, one of the biggest in the world to be sort of looking to the government for handouts, um, came across very, very badly um, amongst their core base saying, you know, you know, the club can afford to pay these workers, why do they need to furlough their staff? So since then, they have actually announced um, a U-turn, they've reversed that decision. Um, so um, they've listened to the sort of the public in terms of their opinions and uh, yeah, U-turn that decision. And obviously, I think. We'd all agree that that was the right decision to make to um, do that U-turn. But a uh, few other clubs uh, currently um, still furloughing their staffs, including um, Spurs, who I'm obviously a supporter of. Not not great from my standpoint. I think um, the club should seriously look about whether this is the right decision to make. But we all kind of know the character Daniel Levy is. But I think a lot of the fan base at the moment are screaming out to him to to reverse that decision as well, but just because of the way it looks for the club. They are another massive club multi I know they're recently in debt because of the new stadium, but they are a massive, massive club and they don't necessarily need to be making this decision.
0: See, I actually think that this hatred, vilification maybe of the decision that Liverpool's owners have taken with the furloughing initially obviously now they've rode back on that but I think that the disappointment of that belies a misunderstanding of what furloughing actually is and how it's funded most specifically like this isn't stealing taxpayers' money. this is just the Bank of England just adding money to the the exchequer's accounts, so it's not the way people are trying to paint it like it's it, the way it's being painted it's as if the owners of Liverpool are putting their hands into a nurse's back pocket and using it to pay the last twenty percent of someone's earnings and leaving the government to fork up the rest of it like the fact of the matter is that the state are' we're looking to are going to pay eighty percent of the wages of people up to two and a half thousand. Uh, pounds per month And then Liverpool Were quite happy To pay the other 20% initially like, like Okay people are saying Liverpool just Announced profits Yeah but Like we're not talking Like hundreds of millions Of pounds or anything Like it So Like, like that's a Vulnerable Thing still even for the club the size of Liverpool they need to protect their long-term sustainability if there's a ser- like if they have a serious cash crunch they're going to need to sell players they need to do what they can to protect ut- people's jobs in the much longer term they need to st- avoid let's say the drop in quality that would lead to other costs on the club like needing to make more transfers sackings even layoffs of non-playing staff and there's just the big unknown element of this how long is this going to go on how long is Liverpool going to have to continue without revenue and actually Peter Moore even addressed this in his letter to fans when he was rowing back the decision and just to give a full reading in the spirit of transparency We must also be clear that despite the fact that we were in a healthy position prior to this crisis, our revenues have been shut off, yet our outgoings remain. And like almost every sector of society, there is great uncertainty and concern over our present and future. Like any responsible employer concerned for its workers in the current situation, the club continues to prepare for a range of different scenarios around when football can return to operating as it did before the pandemic. These scenarios range from best case to worst and everything in between. It is an unavoidable truth that several of these scenarios involve a massive downturn in revenue with correspondingly unprecedented operating losses. Having these vital financial resources so profoundly impacted would have obviously negatively affected our ability to operate as we previously have. What is the issue with Liverpool furloughing?
2: I think, I think for me, I think the main thing to highlight is the non-playing staff. Um, so it's, it's really, it's not, not really about the playing staff, it's about the non-playing staff basically telling all these people that they're not going to be working. Obviously they know they're not going to be working, but the whole scheme essentially, it, it sums up quite well actually if you read the Sean Ingle article in The Guardian where he said about saving just £1 million when you have an annual wage bill of £310 million and you paid £43 million to agents last year. It's, it's not a good look and I think... That's that's the concern here, especially with Spurs as well. They instantly non furlough all their non playing staffs, but no news at all about any of the playing staff who are all still earning two hundred thousand pounds a week for, you know, the highest earners within the team and, you know, thirty thousand pounds a week for some of the other players. That's the concern there.
1: I think you basically have a nail on the head there, Nick. It's not a good look. Um I think i I definitely have a lot of sympathy for Anthony saying there. Um, the scheme is basically being thought of as redundancy, isn't it? People are equating the two in their heads. So they're saying Liverpool are furloughing their staff. So people pass that as being Liverpool are making their non-playing staff redundant. That's, that's not true, obviously. Um, but this is optics in a bad time. And unfortunately, nuance isn't the friend of a scared and irrational public. Um, I think the scheme was designed to stop SMEs from going under. Um, so to some extent, that's the worry. Um, that A lot of people are looking at it and kind of thinking, you know what? The detail means that you're right, Stag, but it's fundamentally not the best look. I mean, Newcastle and Spurs, um, you know, Spurs and uh, Levy, Newcastle and Mike Ashley, you can believe it. You can believe they're going for the furlough option or, you know, trying to make savings however they can. But Liverpool, WTAF, basically, I think the perceptual damage, so we're talking about the abstract, the fluffy brand kind of stuff here, was really tangible. And that's why they made the decision. Credit to them for changing their minds, by the way. A lot of clubs won't do that in the modern age. A lot of people won't admit, in effect, they're wrong. That's what the statement to me basically said in kind of convoluted business language. We were wrong.
0: But like, look, Liverpool have talked about this in the past, about channeling Bill Shankly into their business decision-making and that, you know, his socialist ethos is something that they consider with every decision they make. And would I say that they considered that with this decision initially? No, of course not. But it's this kind of abject just vitriol against furloughing, which is really protecting staff and Liverpool trying to make sure that when pre- football eventually returns, they can take back on their staff again. Just think of the numbers, for example, that have come out from Manchester United's decision not to furlough. Okay? So they're paying 100% of the wages of 900 full-time non-paying staff. They're also paying the full salaries or payments that 950 other non-match-day casual workers would get Plus another three thousand casual match day uh, workers, the huge amount of employees, the huge amount of people that they're trying to protect the incomes of into the future at Liverpool.
1: Now again, I see, I see why they're doing it, and I completely kind of see your point in terms of looking into the detail of what it all means. It's just at the moment, in terms of the brand, which is ultimately paramount because that's where the mar- that's where the market strength comes from. That that's why they made the decision. Whether I agree with it, I probably would have thought about it more in the first place in terms of what you said about Shankly, for example, and that sort of spirit of socialist hoi like, I just don't think uh, that that should have been done. I think that that was a very kind of ultimately naive decision to go for it because they should have thought about how that would have been portrayed and how that would have come out. And ultimately, even though in, in a rational way, yes, of course, it makes sense for them to do it. I think that probably they are going to have a little bit of uh, damage now, but I mean, with doing the U-turn, I think that they probably made that a little bit better.
0: Like, okay, so from that branding point of view, like it's unequivocal. Of course, Liverpool shouldn't have made the decision they made in the first place and as you say credit for them for running back in it because it, it just didn't go with the ethos that they had but the, at the same time you can't say that let's say other Premier League clubs and especially other football league clubs at far lower levels are going to need this like there's so many of them are screaming out that they're going to go under at the lower leagues especially if they weren't able to take, a, take schemes like this furlough scheme but at the end of the day I think if you have a grievance with Liverpool being able or deciding to take on or to use that scheme and in the first place, then really what you have an issue with is how the UK government actually phrased this furloughing scheme in a legal sense and who they allow to take it. But it, like, it's not actually really taking money directly from the fight against COVID. This isn't Liverpool reaching into a doctor's back pocket and it just I just feel that that has been seriously misunderstood in the middle of all this.
1: You wouldn't be suggesting that people are having to go at Liverpool for other reasons or having other agendas, would you, Stag? That that would be absolutely unthinkable, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> Do no, nobody does that. No. <laughs> anyway, assuming uh, we move on from this bit, uh, um, so um, the, the next bit is obviously the indefinite postponement of the season, um, and FIFA also earlier on today said that the nineteen twenty season is basically extended to whenever they want so it's got to be played out it seems like um i mean i think it's like 90 percent. we're sure that the season is going to be concluded in some way shape or form although an interesting character did weigh in didn't he nick today on the length of the season
2: well yeah we've, we've had karen brady um we also had harry kane and, and now we've had luke shaw luke shaw's um stepped up um and given us his, his opinion on what should happen he said the season should be voided so uh thanks luke um you know informative as always um great um, expert advice there from Luke Shaw um, saying the season's going to be null and void.
0: An interesting accessory has come from over here in Belgium where I am based at the moment. And so last Thursday, the Belgian Pro League recommended, so they hadn't decided, but they recommended that their season would be declared finished because of the pandemic and to just accept the uh, the table as it was, as final. Now, they only had one match day left in their regular season. It's a different structure of a league to what you have in the Premier League. Um, But, just to know, UEFA came out strongly against that on Friday, issuing a, jo- a joint statement with the European Club Association and the European Leagues, warning that abandoning domestic competitions at this stage is premature and not justified. So for sure right now, the consensus is to try and save the seasons across Europe. Yeah, cool. And speaking of uh, people coming in to
1: save stricken areas, um, Mr. Kenny was uh, appointed uh, as the island head coach manager. I don't know what the style is over there at the moment, uh, replacing uh, Mick McCarthy. And this is something that you would, you want to talk about at Lempstag. Is he going to turn those 1-1s and 1-0s into 1-1s uh, and 2-1s? What's he going to do?
0: or maybe even 4-0 losses, but it's going to be a bit more interesting, at least. So, Stephen Kenny, uh, a name that many of you probably won't know, has been appointed as our manager, and Damien Duff, a name who many of you will know, is his assistant manager. So, I I think you need to understand where Irish football is coming from to kind of get to this. So, in Euro 2016, we just about qualified, and we took the oldest squad at that uh, tournament to the tournament. And, I guess, look, we did get out of the groups, and that was miraculous in its own way, but the team at The time Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane were presiding over was definitely on its last legs, and so it proved in the Nations League, where we were drubbed continuously by Wales and Denmark, coming last in our group and stuff. Um, Mick McCarthy took over, and sure, okay, he returned smiles, and he was clearly a good guy that the manager or that the players got on well with. But look, this was a man who played a brand of football that perhaps was kind of maybe belongs in the past at this point, and the results were pretty much. Nah, we we beat Gibraltar uh, reliably, just about. Uh, <laughs> we didn't beat Georgia in two games. We did. There were no unbelievable results under Stephen Kenny, and so, like the reason why Mick was brought in initially was to basically qualify Ireland for the Euros in 2020 because games were to be hosted in Dublin, and it would have been a major embarrassment for us to not qualify, and also because the FAI, as wasn't known at the time but has been known since, was financially crippled. So. Like, the problem is, though, is that whilst we watched this really awful football being played, long balls, no ambition, the lot, we had this horrendous contrast when we looked up north to what Michael O'Neill was managing to do with even more limited resources with an Northern Ireland team that had you know the likes of uh, Johnny Evans and... Uh, Kyle Lafferty and Stuart Dallas from Leeds just ripping it up and genuinely attacking really good teams like I even watched them playing against Germany and they really had a go whereas we had this long-term problem that we've had since Trapetoni in the 2000s talking about not having the players you do, we do not have the tribune is what uh, Trapetoni used to say M- Martin O'Neill comes in he's like oh, well, if we had a young Robbie Keane it'd be so much better but like yeah of course it would have been great to have a young Robbie Keane a 100 Premier League go- goals striker but we don't have this Robbie Keane and so it's just like it's just it was so frustrating to deal with and, and Mick kind of just, he didn't quite say things as directly as we don't have the players, but it was much more so an acceptance that we can't beat Georgia away, which was just as heartbreaking, I guess, especially because you know well that Northern Ireland would have beaten Georgia away and at home comfortably. So Stephen Kenny comes in. Then who is Stephen Kenny? He is the man that was the manager of Dundalk when they qualified for the Europa League group stages a few years ago, pushing the likes of Zenit Saint Petersburg, beating um, one of the Israeli teams along the way, taking out um, all sorts of like strong European teams. Like playing though, and really interesting brand of football. He is obsessed with controlling the midfield, about possession. He's so open-minded to trying to get defenders to pass, to have players that attack. And most of all, what he tries to institute is a system. And like that has even been seen in his mo- most recent job, which has been as Ireland 21's manager for the last two years. I've been at a few of their games. I've watched even more of them. And what he's able to do is bring in a system that gets the best out of a whole squad, but where if you lose two players to injury, it seems like he's just able to manage to get the same out of the players that come in. And like, we're not a, a nation that's usually blessed with pools of talent. And yet this is a man who could, you know, Michael Obafemi gets injured. Oh, it's okay. Aaron Connolly will come in and he'll get the same out of him. But not okay. They're both Premier League players. But he was able to do the same thing with left backs none of us have ever heard of. And that's what was most impressive about uh, Stephen Kenny and how he manages his team. And he's just so positive about things. And it's, it's exciting, guys. It's exciting. You definitely sound very uh, enthusiastic and excited about him coming in. Uh, I guess,
1: as you said, the renewal of, uh, of of the squad and I guess given the dearth of talent that you guys have, to be honest, uh, to, well compared to a lot of other countries, I suppose, you, you, the impetus for him is going to be to make this team more than some of its parts, perhaps. Um, I guess it would be fair to
0: say if you're looking at it a bit, a bit more objectively. Absolutely, but that's what every, almost every international manager has really? to do. You know, it's uh, there's only a few Tier 1 nations like the likes of you know, England, Spain, Italy. Even, even Italy haven't been a Tier 1 nation necessarily <laughs> lately. But, no. you know, Ireland's 21 team, like, there is actually talent coming through. There's plenty of guys playing at the, you know, the top division in England or getting regular game time at the Championship already. It's not just, you know almost meme status already Troy Parrott who's 18 and barely played for anybody yet we all talk about him but there's there's the likes of Aaron Connolly the Adam Edas, who's at Norwich there's uh, Gavin Kilkenny playing at Bournemouth Danny Maldreau, who was at Bohemians last season is doing well Jason Knight at Derby County has done so well and Connor Ronan as well he was a player who was out on loan in Slovakia and doing really well out there it's just like there's such a there's such a different like. Mental approach to the game of football with this team and their ambition. I saw them playing Italy off the park in Dublin at a 21s game, and this was an Italian team that had players that we've all heard of. Patrick Catrone played, uh, Moise keen played, plenty of other players there who were playing Zaniolo. Um, Was Nick Zaniolo there? I don't think Zaniolo was there, but there were plenty of. Oh, if he was there, you'd lost. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, possibly. (laughs) Plenty of unbelievably good (laughs) players to a Serie A quality yeah play them off the park.
1: Cool. Oh, well, it sounds it sounds like an exciting time for Ireland. Uh, watch out Northern Ireland, I guess. Okay. Euro
0: you're a twenty twenty one.
1: Indeed. Right, okay. Um so let's let's move move on there then to uh WGTA in lockdown, featuring uh, for the first few pods a Sunday until I die. Uh, we're gonna start the series two. First thing we talk about is why are we doing this? So Obviously, there's no FPL, and it's time to speak up front of you guys, that we're now openly just podcasting for our own amusement and to stop us going insane, uh, basically, is what I said at the top of the pub. Obviously, we do want you to listen, hope we entertain you, uh, but obviously, our main subject matter doesn't exist at the moment. So, at the moment, we, we've got a choice. Basically, we can kind of keep talking about, you know, what we've been talking about, do a mailbag and things like that, or we can try to do something else, come up with something a little bit more, bit more novel, bit a uh, bit more interesting. With something to die, we're hoping that if we kind of go through kind of each episode and uh, talk about some of the key salient points, hopefully that would be a little bit insightful, a little bit interesting. And um, obviously, we'll be back to FBL as soon as possible, though. Um, but over the next six weeks, um, we're going to go episode by episode, uh, summing up our thoughts um, and we kind of narrating the episode to some extent in the style of kind of the Great Generation podcast and stuff like that. Uh, before diving into some key points at relevant times, so those are
2: sound bites and stuff. I'll be doing some magical editing. A different approach we're taking, it's not our usual FPL podcast, but you know, we, we fancy doing something slightly different. Um, we're all watching Sun Until I Die, as I said in the intro, we're, we're all missing the football, and you know, we can watch, watch the football um, as we follow um, the series. I think um, both me and Tom have only seen the first episode so far, so it's very much a fresh take for us. Whilst Vince think and we've seen a few more of the episodes, we've all watched season one as well, so we'll be um recapping a little bit on what happened on season one, I think, before we uh we crack on.
1: Oh, right, let's take a break there and we'll pick up uh, at the start of season two, episode one, A Role in the Renaissance.
2: Who got the assist?
1: Who got the assist? Okay, so we're back and it's a f- 43 minute episode, the first uh, episode in se- series two of *Sun and Slide Die, A Role in the Renaissance. Obviously, it starts with a last time, uh, last season. And uh, Anthony, can you fill in for how it started?
0: Last season, it was a season in the championship. What was meant to be a positive promotion story ended up actually being a dramatic relegation story, which we were all on tender hooks really watching and was brilliant. Uh, It was a threadbare squad. There were cutbacks. We got to see the human impact on players and on the fans themselves. We saw Jason Steele go from optimistic goalkeeper to shadow of himself in no time. We saw local boy George Honeyman close to tears at relegation when, it all went so, so wrong at the end oh. as their season went from bad to worse. Their home form was terrible. The fans turned against them for periods. And then we also had star of the show, Martin Bain, the chief executive, who at first was introduced to us in that that season, um, having his morning swim. But by the end, we saw him leave to a crescendo of boos and cursing and the fans. But yes, the fans turned up for the final game at Sunderland in their droves, like a mother that always loves her kids. (laughs) And it it was stunning that, you know, you kind of saw this club that there was so much soul there. And so then it ended with the new crowd coming in and this club being sold and hope yet again, abound as Sunderland started in League One.
2: So. Yeah, I felt like that at the end of the season one was just absolutely gut-wrenching when, when you saw them all sort of down the pub, like crying, singing, sort of take my heart, take my whole life too. And just everyone just being absolutely devastated. I just remember like the emotional impact really hit me and I wasn't even a Sunderland fan. And you know, you saw, as you said, Martin Bain leaving, being sworn at, Chris Coleman saying, I'm a I've got five kids, mate, and getting in a fight with that fan that was abusing him. It was (laughs) quite a a dramatic ending to it all. And as you said, yeah, it started with so much positivity, even though we all kind of knew what was going to happen. We all had a (laughs) gut-wrenching feeling in our stomachs as we watched along.
1: Yeah, I I think the whole thing commoditized Schadenfreude in in watchable content, didn't it? Um, But yeah, Series 2 starts with Ellis Short selling to a consortium uh, fronted by... uh, Stuart Donald, obviously, and uh, a little interview with them at a press conference, him as uh, Stuart Donald and his uh, sidekick, uh, Charlie Metven, uh, who memorably says, the piss take party stops now. And the series opens, indeed, with Charlie telling uh, who, we presume, is his marketing team, uh, saying how £40 million pounds is being lost per year. Uh, he said, this is a failed-up f- business. This was 100%. We'll discuss this guy a little bit later on in the pub. But it turns out in the, in the meeting as well, but no one had read the details of the dire straits of the club. He exhorts his team to be part of the team that turned around Sunderland Football Club. Do something memorable in your career that you look back on in 20 years' time and you say, I was part of the team that turned that club around. And this is kind of the Peter Griffin, he said at moment as he name checks them having a role in the Renaissance.
0: He, he does. But what I think is so interesting about this is that, you know, a lot of the time there might be takeovers or business leaders kind of come in and they'll talk about the need for cultural change, that people need to, you know, own their work or whatever. But I think you see that, like, there, there actually is a need for them to maybe, you know, own it a little bit more, that nobody knew that the club's interest payments of seven million pounds per year were equal to their whole entire ticket revenue for the season. Like, it, it was so stunning. Like, you know, that's the people who are selling the club to the fans, and they didn't know that basic point.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can build that into discussion on Charlie in a little bit. Um, but it definitely is true that what the club was like is, I think, clear from that from that sort of little insight. And they, could, they literally had no idea, did they? Hadn't bothered to read the, uh, the little pat that he put together for them.
0: But, but they, they said, like, they didn't know that, whilst at the same time, they totally knew what Charlie was trying to get across, that, like, your, your job actually has so much meaning, because this is, you know, the temple of the city, the stadium of light. People come here no matter what. This is the God they worship. And yet somehow they still had not kind of connected those two details. I thought it was amazing
1: absolutely not so with that there's rousing music scenes of sunderland uh, as Barry denning calls them and uh opening music uh, on the river way uh, yeah you know, you know how it goes
0: on the river way used to build the ball.
1: Anyway, uh, so at this point, we've got a juncture. Uh, a question from our friend Death Star FPL. During the opening credits, uh, can you rate the opening title song alongside other preferred favourite opening songs? He goes on to say he imagines Anthony is more of a Friends fan. Uh, but what's our opening
2: TV tunes and what do we think of the uh, the opening to A Sunderland to I Die? Yeah, I actually really like the, the theme music. As I said, it does kind of create this emotional resonance with the the city, Get builds a connection between yourself and the uh, and the city even if you're not from that area and you know it kind of gives you I think like with the, the start of the first season when you first heard the music for the first time they were talking about the religious aspect of Sutherland and how you know even in the church sermons they talk about the football club and they will pray for the football club and then you kind of get introduced to this intro music and they talk about you know the, the port town and it was kind of like the, the imagery in the background is all kind of about the, uh, the industrial sort of town and, and the football and how it all connects within each other. Um, in terms of my favourite TV uh, tune, I, I don't know. I quite like um, sort of the. I quite like the um, if you've ever watched True Detective. I think that's got a really good um, soundtrack to it. Um, I'm also a big fan of the, the music within the wire, both the wire and the uh, True Detective. I think actually some of the same guy, but yeah, um, that's kind of my sort of scene in terms of uh, TV show intros. Uh, I don't know about you, Anthony. are You more of a fan of uh, "I'll Be There for You."
0: I, i'm not a big friends fan but like i have thought about theme tunes that i like and i was i was thinking back at like childhood time pokemon and Yu Gi Oh's ones like they really fit in the madness and the mold of the program that's there you know it's just a, just pure color and imagery and sound and i think that the team tunes oh get my. that across not tom hear me out man but then think about then father ted it also kind of captures the essence of yeah, like you're kind I of going that. backward in time into this funny tragic simpler past and then you've got something very different like what happened it match of the day. There's joy, hope, the associations. Everyone understands it. In Ireland, it's the same with the Sunday game, which introduces GAA programs at home. Like, it's, it's a thing that unifies the community. But for me, uh, the song, which is called Shipyards by the Lake Poets, who... Um, rather unfittingly is actually just the name of a man called Marty Longstaff, obviously a Newcastle name to all of us. But I, I think Death Star's description of it as a funeral march kind of nails it. Like the song is harking back to Sunderland's industrial past, sure. And it's trying to it's talking about trying to make those who have gone by proud. But I, okay, it works because Sunderland's story has been very sad of late as a club, but I don't think it fits the really vivacious, ebullient reality of that club, like what it thinks it is, what it wants to be, and what its fans somehow still are, for me.
1: It's almost like it's knowing, isn't it? It kind of, as you, as we said, that it always introduces itself full of hope, and as that hope sort of dissipates through the season, like it goes from being kind of quite... Funereal to really fitting the, the what, what you expect from the episode's content as things do go downhill i mean i don't know how it's going to go in series two but in series one like at the start it did seem a little bit like it jarred but then towards the end of the season when things were really going downhill very fast it really began to fit the show like almost the show grew into it due to the fact that the content happened even though the content was so kind of unplanned and spontaneous obviously it was it seemed like an incredible choice really
2: well maybe for season three that might be another thing that charlie mevan uh, looks to change as they try and create create a new image for sunderland
1: perhaps but yeah no indeed all right and uh, my favorite uh, entry to any show is uh, hollow talk uh, choir of the young believers which is the opening of the bridge um which is a, a similarly sort of somber uh, funereal start to a show but obviously that's a Scandi noir so it's absolutely perfect for that um Anyway, though, back to the show. And we open in June 2018. We're in Stuart Donald's bathroom, and he's talking about the vitality of promotion, how important it is. And he does this kind of hearty kind of fan service bits to the camera. He's blown away by Sunderland, et etc. et cetera. And I think he did seem kind of fairly genuine articulate I mean he did use a lot of cliches and mostly he doesn't have a Sunderland accent but you know that that seems by the by but then you kind of hear this bit over the radio don't you about who he is and where he's come from and that seems to be a little bit instructive
0: who is Stuart Donald Businessman from Oxford Uh, he runs an insurance company but he also has a 10% stake in Oxford United who play in League One which is the division that Sunderland will be playing in
1: so that felt a bit breezed over almost, didn't it? As if they kind of said, you better not talk about this. It's a bit of a red line. And I think that's a bit of a moment for discussion, isn't it? Because club ownership, Stuart Donald, as you heard, 10% of, of Oxford United's and he sold easily to so now himself ownership. He's basically a serial owner, isn't he? But what do we think about this?
0: It's a very kind of pejorative way almost to look at it if you want to call him a, a serial owner because you could also just say he has a proven track record. And look at it from the other perspective, Um, like the the Chronicle, which is a paper up there in the northeast, looked at fan reactions at Eastleigh at the sale of when he sold it to take over Sunderland and many of them were gutted, heartbroken, they were wishing him the best. Others would have said he overpaid for players. It kind of sounds a bit like what happened with Salford when they were in the lower divisions that they couldn't get anybody cheap. And so, and they also would have criticized him for being a bit too impatient with his managers. But like the Guardian reported that he put 10 million pounds into a over five years to take them from one of those conference regional divisions right through to the conference. So they went up one division for 10 million pounds and for me, like I think Stuart, like okay, he's laden with cliches, sure, but he he's clearly trying. He's trying to be transparent. He's putting his effort in and trying to open himself up. And I think all the credit for him at that point.
1: Far be it for me to correct your pronunciation, but I'm going
2: to relish this. It's East Lee, not Eastleigh. Eastley. <sighs> <laughs> ah. <Got one> in. <laughs> <Remembering> <laughs> I think the whole criticism of him being a serial owner perhaps is a little bit unfair. As Dag as said, what, what he did um, at Eastleigh were very impressive in terms of bringing them up. The divisions, and then um, looking at Sunderland, obviously, Sunderland is a much, much bigger club. And you know, you'd say it's a I wouldn't really call it being a serial owner. When you look at managers, you don't call them being a serial manager if they show some ambition and move from a League One club club to a Premier League club. And you certainly wouldn't say the same about players when they move around. That they're sort of, you know, obviously, you know, like Slatter and might kiss the badge of many, many different clubs, but on the whole, you, you don't kind of. Chastise players for wanting to move um, places so I think I think personally it's okay for him to have gone from Eastleigh uh, the 10% of ownership of Oxford seems a bit dodgy especially considering they're in the same league as Sunderland and there definitely seems like some form of conflict of interest there but we'll see if anything um, over the course of the series builds from that.
1: Yeah I mean I just kind of why that that was breezed over um, especially because that was a really personal point. I mean, this guy owns 10% of a, of a division rival. That seems a, a, a little bit kind of bizarre to me. I guess it was just to help the story flow. Maybe it was convenient for them to just pay lip service and move on. I mean, on ownership, I did have a little look. And obviously, you've got examples of, um, owners owning clubs in different countries, you know, Evangelos marinakis who owns Forest and Olympiakos, for example. The City Group obviously own lots. Um, but in the in England, you seem to be able to do something a little bit different, which is to do what Stuart Donald does or did, or I don't even know. I think he still does have both those stakes, and that you can own a little bit of two clubs. In England, owning a third percent or more is defined as being controlling, whereas under UEFA rules, you can actually own 100 percent of one club and 49 percent of another because they define controlling as being 51 percent of a club. So that allows a loophole at the moment where you can say, "Okay, I'm actually not a controlling stakeholder, so I can have fingers in multiple pies effectively it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about the furloughing almost because it kind of it's just not a good look is it and I think that maybe that's why they sort of um, breezed over it because it, getting into it would have been a whole kind of sub chat in itself which is perfect for something like this but maybe for the show it would have arrested the momentum of the narrative which maybe which is why they didn't really go into it but I don't know I think for a lot of people I think it was a Hornet FPL spoke to me earlier on today when I said we were going to do this and he said that like that, that but it didn't really sit right with him and you know, it's just something that I picked up on uh, the second time watching, taking notes of this. And I thought, WTF, I, I can't believe I've heard that.
0: I Call me commercially naive, but why would it necessarily be that important? Like, it'd be one thing if he was a 10% uh, owner of Oxford United whilst at the same time somehow in some sort of CEO role at that club. But the fact of the matter is that you know his his pocket is really on the line at Sunderland, a club that he's taken over and put his own money into, whereas Oxford United was his boyhood club, one that he's put a bit of money into. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be the the sort of thing that's going to bring him untold riches like at the end of the day his bread is buttered in Sunderland and 10% is a pretty inconsequential stake as far as I'm concerned
2: yeah yeah, I think I, I can see both arguments to be honest I, I kind of agree with you there in terms of what you said it is perhaps it's inconsequential that he's invested in his sort of previous club and he does have some form of ownership I think it's just it's just a very Interesting to see how this develops, and particularly if they are, um, they do show some clips of them. Um, playing Oxford. Whether that topic will be addressed again later later on in the series.
1: Cool. All right. Um. Anything else on that bit? Um, move on.
2: So um, I think yeah, the series moves on um, with sort of the radio interview, as as I was picked up in that radio interview, and then um, some more kind of chats with with some of the fans, and um, then it kind of goes on to the sort of the axing of the 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 bloated nature of some of the playing squads so we see the likes of Ndong he's he shifted um Stephen Fletcher and uh, Sheffield United uh, Jack Rodswell, of course um finally being shifted it was just absolutely ridiculous that whole storyline in the first series the amount of money that that guy was costing the club they had to get rid of him sharp and uh, they were able to, to move him on to Blackburn luckily and um Aidan McGeady, he's still within the playing squad. I think most, a lot of us probably forgot him, that he was even a thing, to be honest. You know, the glory days of his um, Everton appearance, and he was one of David Moy's boys uh, brought from Everton to Sunderland uh, alongside the likes of Donald Love and I think Paddy McNair as well.
1: God, I think he's in, he's at Charlton now, but he's still on the contract at Sunderland. So your man uh, McGeady must have been on a ridiculous contract with them, Stag. It that seems amazing that McGeady's still still under contract to Sunderland many many years later it's like he's been there forever doesn't it
0: putting his body on the line and playing brilliantly for them as (laughs) kind of the series will play out in fairness like he he wasn't a member of that screen of pain that we saw with Endong Fletcher uh, Guy and Jermaine Lawn and Rodwell like, you know he's certainly not in that bracket and you kind of as the series develops you'll see the effort he's putting in and but he, he really does care and you also saw that in the previous series where he kind of talked about I think it was Chris Coleman's methods and kind of wasn't too approving of them but you could yeah. see that like unlike some of the players there he really did care about what was going on and understood the value of the club so I, I don't know I'll always stick up for the Republic of Ireland International won't I
2: Got that vibe from Lee Catamore as well. He's another one of the players that sort of one he sort of bloated wage packets that they weren't able to shift. But he's another one that I felt like really did seem to to care about the club. He just just wasn't able to put in the performances that the fans wanted to see. Unfortunately, but that's because of skill or, or something else. What what about
1: what about Darren Gibson though? Stark? I'm sure. Do you think he cared as much about the club? <laughs>
0: He, he certainly uh, talked the talk for a while he's, he's, he's actually been doing quite well for uh, Salford City actually uh, oh. this season so uh, best of luck to Gibbo uh, yeah. in his new ventures stay off the
1: vino mate right and then uh, we move into young uh, brilliant manager Jack Ross being appointed and you see his kind of football manager the game that is style uh, opening press conference and he says you know, it's better to be going down enough and uh, it's a great challenge for him and he's hoping he can rise to the occasion but how do you think he, he came across he seemed like he's going to be a main guy uh, in this
2: series isn't he? Yeah, I mean it's early days I felt like he said the right things in, in the press conference he very, very much had a sort of football manager feel to it didn't he in terms of well he had about five options in terms of where he thinks they might finish at the end of the season he's like well we're going to be going for promotion and and uh, you know the fans reacted positively to that comment and uh, in terms of his uh, manner he's obviously a um, sort of young upcoming manager not one that you know, I personally had heard of uh, before he moved to Sunderland. So I think it's a, it's a bold choice for sure.
0: I think he'd come in with um, having been a manager of the year, a young manager of the year in Scotland the previous season. So it, you know, he might've been actually quite a good coup for them to get at the time, but no, the, the clichedness of the, the very football manager-esque press conference was hilarious almost. And my, the thing I enjoyed the most was actually seeing Charlie Methven kind of pressing himself up against the, the wall to the side, just watching it. And his face was just telling like a thousand stories at the same time as he reacted, especially to that, as you call it, Nick, where, you know, where uh, Jack Ross just clicks the, we're going for promotion button. And he kind of goes, oh God, he said it. He said it. <laughs> that was great.
1: <laughs> no, I think it's one of those isn't it? So I think he was at St. Mirren and he won, as you said, the Young Manager of the Year. And he won the, the Scottish Championship that year and gotten promoted. Sunderland and Ipswich were both actually gunning for Jack Ross's services, and it sounds like uh, oh, we'll see who got the best end of the deal. But Ipswich have uh, ended up with Paul Lambert. Oh, interesting one. Uh, but yeah, no, he seemed like a seemed like a nice guy, and you see him kind of getting on with the footballers as they come and go, and um, c- clapping them, uh, clapping them. Uh, what the hell is this called? High fiving kind, uh, kind of. No, no, no. It wasn't really high five though. It's it's, like it's a, a it's a real kind of vibe. like
0: it's an up high like Denny Den- Den- oh handshake thing, thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah it's like clasping hands with them as he goes through the physio room and goes you well you well and they'll go yes boss yeah and then it cuts to our man uh, Charlie Mevin speaking to his marketing team and I guess this is one of the biggest points of this week's podcast and this episode because the overlay is Charlie saying he's a big picture man he's a journalist the marketeer um, whereas uh, Stuart is the details man he, his, uh, his role he says is to express things into plans strategies and ideas um, he, he starts a meeting with his marketing team he's late of course and he sets out as he says that he, he wants him to be the number one for engagement fan service and other things like that uh, but there's a key moment here which is the key a key moment for episode one which is the music change which sounds very very silly very very small um, but they really focus in on this and make this a big part of, this, of the episode because I think it is emblematic of you know a new ownership new era new things like that so the music changes from the dance of the nights aka the apprentice music uh, to the sort of clubby trance. So this is dance of the nights right?
2: This this is how I do it like the DJ, because you've got to try and build people up, and you've got to try and get up to the
1: atmosphere building. The scene becomes a bit like a parody basically at that point. The question here then, was it genuinely clever, or was it just a shallow gesture?
2: So, so I mean, when I was first watching this scene, I, I, I thought the whole thing was just, this just came across a little bit ridiculous, a little bit... A little bit parody esque. I don't know. As you said, they they chose to make it a big focus for episode one. I'm I'm not sure if that was sort of a decision based on sort of Charlie's and Stuart. I don't know how much control they actually have in terms of the content that is on the on the um, documentary. But I think in ter- in terms of a, a gesture. I couldn't get my head round it at first. I couldn't really understand why this was happening. What was the whole point of it? It seemed it seemed very pointless, and that was illustrating later scenes as well. But then, when Charlie kind of explained himself later on in the episode, in the tunnel, to kind of you know highlighted the fact that look, they, they've got this club has got a whole year without winning a single game at this um, stadium, or at least nearly a year. That was just, to be honest, that is an absolutely shocking statistic. And he really kind of you know gave off this. You know, Viber right, basically saying what he wants to do. He's a big picture man, as he describes himself. He wants to turn Sunderland into a fortress. He wants to uh, opposing teams to come to Sunderland and and be scared. Whether, whether that's going to happen with a bit of IB for EDM trance music, I'm not sure, but I can I can certainly understand that he's saying that I can't affect things. You know, in terms of the players' performances, but I can change the stadium. That is what I have control over. I can make it. I can make an intimidating place for people to come to. He wants people to come to Sunderland and be and be scared of you know of playing this team like they were going to Old Trafford in in the nineties and um zero zeros. You know that that's that's his grand picture. That's that's what he's going for here. And you know like his approach is is not really one that you know I I would personally follow if if I was in charge of the company. It did come across um, as I think we we're going to mention later a little bit David Brent esque. But I can understand what he's trying to achieve with this.
0: So I think I'm going to come in with a Metvin-esque one-liner here. But the fact of the matter is, is that he recognizes that if Sunderland were competing on The Apprentice, they would have been fired so many times. So they just had to break with the past on this. And so, look, okay, people, like even the people who were in there with him in the meeting, they were, you know, one of the guys points out that the music that they had was slow. It was boring. Like it wasn't motivating anybody. And as you say, Nick, he's creating a fortress here. So I... I like that. Now, what I think is quite interesting though, is that he he plays the music and then he goes, you know, someone challenged me on this idea. And, you know, one of the uh, ladies points out how, you know, well, it's, you know, it's the song we've had for years and it's been here since the stadium opened. And, you know, it's for people of a certain generation it ties us back. And, what I love though is he asked someone challenge me here. It was the same EDM track. They didn't even change EDM track as it comes to it. You see them walking out on the first day of the season to the same thing. So at the end of the day, Methvin's way or the highway.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. I think
0: he'd made his decision, um, and that he was basically
1: just going to legitimate it through some sort of pseudo democracy. Um, but as anybody who's ever worked in the business under one entrepreneur knows, it's not a democracy; it's a dictatorship, a benevolent one, but it's a dictatorship. Um, but yeah, it felt it felt like a statement sacking almost to me. Like it was a demarcation of a new era, and uh, you know, every manager does kind of, uh, I guess in, in football terms, every manager does scapegoat a player or has been known to, to assert his authority, uh, be it behind closed doors, most of the case, or if you're someone like Jose Mourinho, throwing a player on the bus like Don Um, I was actually once the designated stat- statement sacking myself uh, for a, a CEO to assert authority at a past job. Yeah, when I was uh, my first ever job, I was a young upstart. Um, who dared answer her back uh, that I thought that she was she told me to do something I said no I don't think that's actually the right thing to do turned out I was right um, but she tried to sack me over it and um, I had to write a groveling apology I didn't really mean and then uh, soon left but <laughs> yeah and um, so yeah and um, I think it does seem to be something that's done that people do want to make one statement which is kind of cosmetic in some ways but in other ways does have that sort of profundity to it but I guess kind of a nice further avenues talking about charlie a little bit more because he is an interesting character here um, in terms of what nick was saying about his personality his persona i suppose and how that sort of comes across in front of the pod uh, james Corral, speaks to this we're not going to do this but here's the question he asked which was rank these bosses charlie metham Stuart donald martin bain david brent and jeff lintonator linton uh, from the train guy um, but instead of doing that the question i'm going to ask is are the david brent stereotypes fair um do we think that they're merited what was our view of of this guy? I mean, I'm sure it will change over the course of the series and we'll come back to it. But in terms of this guy, I mean, is it fair to kind of characterize him as that kind of person straight away?
0: So for me, the, the key with David Brent is that, you know, you're trying to be this pally, friendish, mentorish person, whilst at the same time you think that all of your staff find you funny, that they enjoy your company, that they want to be around you, that they respect you. But at the end of the day, they think you're just pretentious, arrogant and mean. I don't think that Charlie Methven is under any illusions about maybe how he's coming across, but he's trying to kind of win respect by winning almost. If he was a football manager, that's what he was trying to do. You know, it's like if we turn this ship around and they'll come back on side. And so it's, it's not the classic Brentism in that sense that he's he certainly doesn't think they like him now, but he thinks he'll make them like him.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. I think the reason you, you make those comparisons is because of the way he's acting around the camera. And it'd be very interesting to see how he acted if that camera wasn't there, whether he'd have, you know, performed. Cause it was, It almost felt like a performance in front of the cameras. I, I'm going to make a point. I'm going to say to the guys, do you know the answer to this question? You should know the answer because he knows the camera's watching him or he's going to say, someone challenge me on this, you know, quite assertively. Like, I, I just can't see that an individual would act that way if the camera wasn't there. That, that was kind of my only kind of comparator between David Brent. But I think otherwise, I think it's probably quite an unfair comparison because David Brent, you know, anyone who's watched The Office knows he's an idiot and uh, you know tries to be pally and tries to be funny and, and evidently fails epically. And that's not really what Charlie Metham's about. He, he's more about the business. And you can see that's his end goal but you know it did come across a, a little a little bit like a caricature slightly I think partly because the camera was there
1: Yeah I mean he says I need everybody to see what good looks like and then I think that that kind of informs as Nick says the performance that he puts on but in terms of the Brent stereotype I just don't think that that's fair actually like I can see where where that comes from for Charlie more than did for Martin Bain who I think just definitely was not a David Brent um, I think David Brent exists and does so well because he's a stereotype he's an he's somebody that you can basically say has some similarities in his character to lots of people that you know Bane felt a lot like a lot of directors that I've come across in my career who and he particularly was just having a really hard time and I felt genuinely sorry for him Um, and I felt the David Brent for Martin Bane felt like something that people reach for when they hadn't been exposed to somebody like this guy before and kind of we're just looking for a stereotype to kind of help them relate to this person. And they, a lot of people did reach for Brent. I didn't quite get that uh, with meth. Then I definitely can see that a little bit better, but I guess in his defense, sometimes you do have to have a structure in place and the language of business is often buzzwords. Um and, you know, uh, I know it doesn't sound particularly cool, but a lot of the time these phrases circle back, <laughs> revert um I don't know, they got ducks in a row like all of these sorts of things they exist for a reason because it gives everyone a frame of reference to talk on and I just ask is the FPL community that dissimilar? Like I often get people picking on me if I use a, an unfamiliar word which is part of an expanded vocabulary that people aren't used to you know, for example someone like Adam Hurry uh, football cliches his whole account is based on the fact that we all use a shared lexicon and it's the same in business as well people do use the same phrases and they use them for a reason so everybody knows what they're talking about even though it, it does sometimes come off as, as pretty quick fringe worthy like arrogant yeah i can see that but equally like why do people see that as well i I don't think he actually pervades too much arrogance per se he's not like nasty or anything it's just stereotyping a little bit like but i guess uh, kind of to next point like how else would you want him to act would you want him to be nervous like everyone would having a go at him saying he's a bit sniveling you know a little bit kind of cowardly if he was like a schemer, everyone would be saying, oh, he's basically Peter Baelish. He's basically a devious guy. Like It's, it's very no-win for him, I kind of feel. But one thing he does need to do is ditch the pastel chinos as soon as possible, because they're making it look an absolute twat, don't they, really?
0: You see, I think he reminds me, actually, of Jurgen Klopp. If Jurgen Klopp took over your business, he'd kind of do the same thing. He'd speak in very kind of layman's terms. You know, this business is effed. You know, this team is effed. We need to change things. You know, let's say, remember what Klopp did when they drew with West Brom. He brought the whole Liverpool team down to, like, Saturday the away fans, lifting their arms up. This sort of, like, crazy, what looked at the time to be complete statements, but in the overall sense, of actually did help bring that team around. And, you know, within a few years, they were European champions. So. I actually think that's the biggest comparison that I could think of off the top of my head. And it's only just because you're meeting this man for the first time, this is how you view him. But because someone like Klopp came from abroad where he'd already succeeded, you had a totally different view. Yeah, I think
1: all these little sort of things can be building blocks to a narrative. And as you say, like, if things hadn't worked out for Klopp, then all these things would be looked at as being utterly ridiculous, like some sort of weird thing that some strange foreign manager had done, like, as soon as you said that about West Brom I immediately thought of Phil Brown at Hull sitting the players on the on the pitch and doing half-time team talk right like if Hull had done really really well that season like he'd have been lauded as being the guy who you know inspired them to this through some unorthodox sort of tactics and I think it's kind of that sort of how things become a narrative I guess is
0: he even briefly got that credit before again being derided did he not because G- did they not win a weekend later and Jimmy Bullard went out I and sat them Jimmy, all around him and did Jimmy,
1: it I think Jimmy Bullard was taking the piss off well, and,
0: but he was getting the credit still for you know re-energising them by maybe yeah. like being a bit self-effacing and then yeah,
1: maybe it was short-lived I think I think it was just mm-hmm. Jimmy being cheeky rather than Phil uh, Bowne being credited yeah I mean a week's a long time in football of course as we all fondly remember from our days of watching football <laughs> but yeah
2: I think that's de- that's definitely um, a complimentary uh, comparator there, though, uh, to compare him with um, Jurgen Klopp. I think, uh, yeah, maybe we'll go with that one as opposed to David Brent for now. But let's see if that that changes uh, later on in the season. There, so yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, kind of
1: in tune with this, kind of changing things up, making things happen. You see the, the signings coming in. You see training kind of starting under Jack Ross. You see them changing the seats so it comes up that the pink seats are really annoying the fans the, the light in the stadium of light is too lighty it's making them all go pink uh, so they're changing all the players you see mr O'Nien, one of the footballers
0: pronounced nine like oh number
1: yeah, it's oh nine I, okay. I thought it was oh <laughs> nine at first but no it's nine like the oh, mr oh nine i felt um, like
2: yeah Luke, Luke, going
0: Luke, Luke, in two footed yeah. sorry
1: <laughs> luco <Luke, O-N- laughs> nine uh, <laughs> He's half Asian like me, which I
2: enjoyed. Um, He's half Irish, as well. <laughs> yeah. Probably, um, I don't know. <laughs> for <laughs> once, I actually don't know. Absolutely. I'll check. He he seemed a bit starstruck by Aidan McGee and uh, Brian Oviedo, didn't he? <laughs> which was a bit. <laughs> yeah. I
0: actually, do you know what? Sorry, to like, we'll focus in on Luke O9 for a second because I wrote down in my own notes when I was watching it. Starstruck
2: <laughs> because it just totally sums and then, him up. And he had an absolute absolute shocker of a first game as
0: well. A shocker of a first game, but also he had a shocker of a chair fitting session. Because there was that fan who came up oh, to him yes. and they were t- <laughs> they were talking about, you know, you know, maybe they'll you should sign this chair because maybe when you become something it'll be worth something. It'll yeah what's your, na- say, what's
1: your name, sorry? What's your name? Yeah. Lu- Luke. Your name? Yeah.
0: No, it no, it's Luke <laughs> and then no, what's your saying? Luke 9? Oh, right, yeah, <laughs> you know. And then maybe they'll say Luke O9 built this chair, <laughs> and
2: it was just <laughs> like,
0: really "Oh, up. Luke!
2: Ah. this was the chair that was fixed by what's your name, Luke? Look, <laughs> look what oh, no. right? That's what you could see." In my notes, I just put Luke O9 fixing the chairs. <laughs> 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 oh, it just but, um, like down to
1: earth they are, doesn't
2: it? I just, I think it, the whole chair fitting, though. I think that was quite a, another sort of clever brainwave from from Stuart and, and Charlie. Though it, it did feel like they're sort of trying to harness the power of the fans, getting the the new um, signings involved, getting all the fans involved, and uh, a quick way for for some uh, free labour as well, which was a very very clever sort of uh, policy to introduce in terms of their trying to cut down the budget as as much as possible. <laughs>
0: Maybe something to just look at there. There was a bit of contrast, though. So you've got this effort that the two directors are putting in to get the fans in. Right? You could say for free labor if you wanted to, as you say, Nick. But they're trying to get the fans in to have a physical manifestation of like the change. But at the same time, you had this like physical manifestation, again, of the culture of the staff within the club that Stuart walked past. If you remember the glue, that was there was a sign that had fallen off the outside of the building. And Stuart was complaining that, Oh my God, they, nobody has like had the joy in their work to go and fix this sign. It just looks so awful. I can't believe it. I just love that kind of like play between the two at the same time that you're, you're kind of seeing that both legs aren't necessarily travelling at the same speed at that club.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. And then that scene is juxtaposed with Charlie testing the new music and having a really cringeworthy exchange with the stadium announcer um, and kind of walking around the stadium, hearing this sort of EDM IB for club music and kind of you know, throwing his hands up in the air. And you're kind of thinking, oh, mate, oh, mate, come on. Like, he's one of those people who hasn't accepted his age sort of thing and probably still sees himself as being like how he was when he was 20.
0: He was he was a DJ really he was a dj he was a dj yeah i thought he was just uh, uh, guessing that no 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 former dj and so i think that that's part of it but my favorite part of that exchange was you know he asked him to turn it up and the guy comes down through the radio you're the boss He said, oh well i wouldn't say that and it's just kind of (laughs) ah (laughs) jeez Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. I, can,
1: I guess you can see from that sort of exchange that it was incredibly cheesy. Adam Pritchard level of cheese there, but you kind of look at it and you kind of think, ah, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Um, so moving on, we go, through, you know, injuries start to come in. The new, the new striker, Wike, has been injured and a few other players have been injured and they're kind of thinking, oh, you know, the big game, uh, the first game of the season is against Charlton. Um, they all sound very nervous the morning before. How are you
2: feeling, all right? I've never been well, nervous for a game
1: of football. Never. I don't mean I've never, I've never. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, they do the games really, really well. I think on Sunday to die, like it's a real centerpiece. It takes about fifteen minutes of this episode actually to go through that whole sort of gamut of what's going on from them arriving to the game to the Spanish uh, Ned asking, "What are they singing?" Uh, to, to the uh, to the last gasp, Lyndon Gooch goal. Everyone loves a gooch goal, don't they? Um, but yeah, no, very, very cool indeed. Uh, what do you guys think about how they do the uh, how they do
2: the games in London slide I think it is really cool. Yeah, I really like it. I think it's it very interesting to spend so much time on one particular game. And they did that quite a bit on, in the, the last series as well. Sort of these focal points, these focus points, and you get to see the, the board members as well um, at half time going to their private room, all kind of getting quite worked up, quite agitated. And you, you kind of see the fans as well. You didn't see as much of the fans. This episode you have done previous series. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I do really like the way they focusing on the match I couldn't, I had no idea what the score was going to be to be honest I don't know if you guys had any idea at all but that kind of adds a bit of drama to the occasion as well none of us can watch any real football at the moment so yeah, yeah I thought that was really effective.
0: What I thought was really effective about that whole pre-game part, actually, there was really nice cinematography around Sutherland, et cetera, et cetera, you know, showing the, the the city getting ready. But what I really liked was that, okay, as Tom alluded to, we saw that the actual management group were super nervous before the game. And we saw Stuart Donald talking about his doubts that if their hard work wouldn't pay off and how would it go whatever. But they weren't just worried within themselves and with each other. They were also nervous, like, outside to fans, to the ownership. group. Like, and they were trying to be as transparent as they could about how they felt and the uncertainty of the occasion. And there was that moment where they pulled up beside another fan in a car and they spoke out the window to each other and they were basically just explaining that they were, all, that they were super nervous and the fan was kind of almost wondering, how could you be nervous? But I, I loved that moment of just like, okay, these guys are just doing their best to try and integrate and put their body on the line almost for the club.
1: Well, put their uh, put their money on the line, I suppose, for the club, and put their professional pride on the line for the club, which seems to be an underlying sort of factor of this show. And obviously, as I mentioned earlier, there is this fantastic last gasp uh, diving header uh, past the Charleston keeper by Lyndon Gooch, which sells the game. And then, as kind of we fade out, we have uh, our man Charlie uh, providing this sort of overlay, who kind of starts to talk about as the fans all cheer deliriously uh, what they're trying to do.
0: Okay to keep ourselves steady, even while around us emotions are swirling he, he kind of reminded me of the tree people in the Lord of the Rings because he's talking about how you know we need to be steady while people are emotional we need to still the turmoil and we need to harness the passion of the fans he really reminded me of those tree people that it's just like you know no matter what we will be slow and deliberate and we will be we will think about what we do and try to not just lose our minds I, I kind of liked it again okay this cliches is etc but I still kind of like the message he was trying to get across it wasn't just like I'm as delirious as the rest of you let's get on the roller coaster and see where we go, Sunderland have
1: had enough of that. Uh, like, like the ends for you. For me, I was thinking Rodyard Kipling, if you can keep your head while those around you are uh, losing theirs. I,
0: I thought he was going to finish the line because he had like half of a line and he didn't actually go for the rest of it. But yes, I saw that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But yeah no, I said harness the passion of the fans. And if we get that right, the, inten- the intensity and emotional support can be an unstoppable force, he says, to end it on a horribly cringeworthy.
2: Right. Brentism. It definitely felt rehearsed. That line, didn't it? But, <laughs> as you said, he, he did. You could tell the vibe that he was going for in terms of what the message he's trying to portray, at least. Yeah, patient and considered in the face of delirium. I think probably
1: is about right. So that takes us to the end of episode one. Did we like the episode, guys?
0: Yeah, I think it was a pretty solid introduction. Like there was an awful lot of new things to take into account with this. Like there was a new manager, a new squad, a new ownership group, new chairs, new music. An awful lot of things to kind of get acquainted with, and I thought they did a pretty good job of bringing us through that and into the first game of the season, which was, I guess, the perfect kind of Cinderella story for day one. Yeah, yeah,
2: I, I agree with you. I really like the episode as well. It's actually, in terms of the football documentaries that I have seen, it's certainly been the best one of the bunch. I've only seen seen the Salford one, uh, Leeds one, and Manchester City one, but I feel like this this definitely sort of the best and not just because of the the sub story element to it, but just in terms of the cinematography and everything that goes with it.
1: Yeah, it's very good, I thought as well. And 43 minutes, I think the next episode that we'll cover next week um, is only about half an hour. So yeah, quite a a long introduction, but introducing all those things, as Stag said. And uh, key takeaways, I guess, in this episode as well. Uh, The first thing is to see whether Charlie can implement what he's talking about. So often you get loads of people at companies who are all fart, no poo. Uh, We'll talk a lot in uh, conference calls and we'll talk a lot in working group meetings about what they're going to do. And you find out two weeks later, they've done absolutely nothing. So it'll be interesting to see whether Charlie does do that Um, and whether Stuart Donald's vision can be, uh, well, Charlie's vision, I guess, uh, through
0: Stuart Donald can be realised. Any other key takeaways you think from this? I loved uh, when they were doing the repair of the seats uh, scene, uh, one of the uh, fans that was there talked about the new owners being a godsend. And what I kind of liked is, you know, I immediately went through my head was how long will that last? Knowing what had happened to the previous ownership group.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is very interesting. I also um, noticed, obviously, with Josh Madger, um, who we haven't talked about in this episode. Um, I remember last season, he was like the young upcoming, full of enthusiasm, excited to be at the club. And then I think the first scene, we, um, when he's sort of in the changing room, he's late. And uh, he's like, oh, what was your excuse? Why are you late? He's so just chilling, just chilling at home. It felt like a lot of negative energy, a lot of negative energy that we saw from some of the players at the beginning of the previous season. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how that develops um, and his his relationship with new manager as well.
1: Yeah, some foreshadowing there. It may be said. I can see stag.
0: Brilliant. There's a particular moment there actually just as the as uh, Jack Ross keeps walking out of the room and Maja looks across to forgive me I don't remember which of the other players and the two of them kind of make eye contact and you kind of know that they're yeah. both like oh that those handshakes or whatever you want to call them they were naff weren't they you know yeah. they're immediately
2: they've just written them off yeah, it was, There was certainly a, a look between the two players yeah. yeah they left that in didn't they just the
1: tantalising moment that the camera lingered just like second too long just to kind of show you that, that they wanted you to see that uh that exchange in the players the unspoken I, exchange of
2: course i think it contrasts quite well with, with george honeymoon who, who who sort of like he came across time hey man sorry who came across um the sort of best out of all the players in the first season the, the player that wears um sort of his heart on his sleeve and was given the uh the captain's armband
1: yeah no absolutely cool well we hope you enjoyed that and um, we'll be back you know next week to talk episode two um, that would be kind of the way we do it. We'll kind of narrate in some sentences our way through the episode and take some pit stops during it, uh, just to talk through some key points. So, for example, you know, tonight we're talking about the ownership issue and also uh, talking about um, Charlie and his sort of uh, way of approaching uh, way of approaching things.
0: Thanks very much for listening, guys. And please do give us any feedback or any thoughts that you want. I think we're, we kind of see this as like a, a great opportunity to kind of almost explore the world of football with Sunderland to almost as like the conduit that kind of just brings us along the way. And I think there's an awful lot of really interesting themes. I think I'm the only one here who's watched the whole series straight through um, already. And there's an awful lot to consider and unpack to use one of another one of those uh, directorisms as we go through this. And it's, it's actually a brilliant series. So...
2: Yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to, to watching the rest of it and I think I'll probably be doing episode by episode as as we pod um, just so my opinions aren't too biased even though I do know what happens with Sunderland at the end of this particular season. Um, but yeah, um, that, was, that was fun to do anyway and uh, just to say who we are, um, we are Who Got The Assist Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL at WGT underscore Nick at FPL um, and we're on Instagram WGTA spot FPL
1: We'll be back next week to talk about episode two, the old-fashioned way. Well, I'm not going to assist you with anything again, but stay safe and we'll speak to you very very soon. Cheers. Salon. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist?
2: Sports Social Podcast Network.